This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Over 175 million years ago, the world was a lot more unified than it is today. It was the early Mesozoic era, and all our current continents were conjoined into one great supercontinent, Pangaea. But as the years passed, all that began to change. Tectonic plates shifted and were torn asunder. Ancient life on the great landmass, from microscopic bacteria to dinosaurs to the earliest mammals, were separated from each other by a cataclysmic division. Amongst all these life forms was one smaller than any eye could perceive, a parasite that would one day be called Leishmaniasis. As Pangaea split apart, evolution and speciation divided along with it. Millions of years down the line, there wouldn't be one world, but an old world and a new world, now in opposition. It would be as if the living beings on each side of this split existed in different universes. The strains of the Leishmaniasis parasite and many other diseases fractured and developed into subforms and variations. But as we know, the old and new worlds would not be separate forever. As human culture expanded and grew, these two sides were put on a collision course with terrible potential for destruction. Although diseases such as Leishmaniasis were temporarily forgotten by the old world, they would soon make themselves known once again. And if humanity proves incapable of coming together in a cultural Pangaea, the biological and cultural differences between us may literally eat us alive. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life or death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. 
Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our second episode on leishmaniasis, a lethal disease caused by parasites that eat away at the body until it can no longer survive. Last week, we followed the writer Douglas Preston on a modern-day expedition for a lost city in Honduras and learned how they returned infected with the insidious parasitic disease leishmaniasis. This week, we'll travel through time to trace the history of leishmaniasis and the efforts to cure those who suffer from it, including the members of Preston's expedition. We'll also explore the dangers posed to all of us by the geopolitical conditions on our planet that leave us vulnerable to deadly pandemic outbreaks. In February 2015, an expedition into dense Mosquitia touched down on the outskirts of what the explorers believed to be a lost city. The team was a diverse collective. Filmmaker Steve Elkins, journalist Douglas Preston, archaeologist Chris Fisher, photographer Dave Yoder, survival and security expert Andrew Woody Wood, and many more scientists, researchers, and military personnel. The explorers had used advanced technology to map Mosquitia and old-school negotiation to convince the Honduran government to allow their visit. Within days, they had uncovered a site they called Target 1, or T1. The ruins there seemed to match an old legend. Locals had whispered about it for years, and 20th century treasure hunters had followed its trail for no reward. Known as La Ciudad Blanca, or the White City, the legend posed many questions. Far from the rest of Mesoamerica, had another advanced culture thrived in the jungle? And if it had, was there any truth to the local legends surrounding the lost city's curse? After archaeologist Fisher uncovered a cache of ritualistic artifacts on the edge of T1, The answer to both of these questions seemed to be yes. As Douglas Preston outlined in his book about Mosquitia, Lost City of the Monkey God, these artifacts seem to confirm that his hidden Mesoamerican culture was, like so many others, a victim of the old world's expansion into the new. The lost culture of Mosquitia had most likely absorbed the remnants of the disintegrated Maya Empire around 1000 CE. This assimilation opened up trade routes through the heavy vegetation and mountainous terrain that had shielded Mosquitia from outside influence. But this influence came with new dangers. Amongst other diseases, smallpox spread by European traders played a huge role in destroying the native populations of the Americas. 
Indigenous Americans had not developed the same immune defenses as the population of the Old World and were set aflame with infection following Columbus's initial arrival in 1492. The cities and temples of Moschidia grew vast in the time between 1000 to 1500 CE, but this also put them in the crosshairs of infection. Although the European colonialists never made it to this land, their pathogens and disease did. Fisher's artifact site was full of shattered objects dating back to around 1500 CE. The expedition's conclusion, therefore, was that disease had ravaged the population to such a point that the few survivors decided to abandon their once thriving culture. Although saddened by this discovery, the expedition and the Honduran government were overjoyed to finally have a breakthrough on what happened to La Ciudad Blanca. Years of research were still to come, but the team members departed in February 2015, believing they had ended speculation regarding the curse of the lost city. And then, one by one, many of them began to fall ill. Strange rashes and boils would not disappear despite antibiotic treatment. It wasn't malaria or any other such tropical disease. By May, photographer Dave Yoder had confirmed he was suffering from the parasitic disease leishmaniasis. Soon enough, others like Douglas Preston would have to admit the same. Something had followed them home. The new world had struck back against the old. And so we return once again to the Mesozoic era, over 170 million years ago. Although there are multiple hypotheses that point to different time periods and locales for the genesis of the Leishmaniasis parasite, the supercontinent hypothesis seems to be the most supported by evidence. The vast scope of the parasite's history is well detailed in a research paper published in Parasites and Vectors in February 2017 by Dietmar Steverding. He believes the supercontinent hypothesis is the most robust due to three important factors. First of all, science has uncovered a sandfly infected by leishmaniasis preserved in Burmese amber for over 100 million years, meaning that the parasite dates to at least the Cretaceous period of the Mesozoic era. Secondly, archaeological records from the Assyrian Empire include descriptions of lesions that match the symptomatology of leishmaniasis. Researchers also discovered evidence of the disease in four Egyptian mummies, this points to the parasite's existence in some locations in the Old World, most prominently in the Middle East. Finally, archaeologists have found pre-Columbian ceramics that depict the disfiguring facial conditions common in one type of leishmaniasis. These date the parasite's existence in the New World back to at least the 5th century. All in all, this corroborates the idea that Leishmaniasis has existed for a very long time in both the Old and New World, and long before those geographical distinctions existed, too. It goes all the way back to the dinosaurs and Pangaea. 
From these prehistoric origins, the parasites percolated through time and space. Between the 16th and 19th centuries, the disease was noted in various regions from Aleppo and Baghdad to the Peruvian Andes. Yet no direct cause was ever discovered, and these medical accounts remained as they were, separated by cultural barriers and distance. Ironically enough, it was another wave of colonial imperialism that finally defined leishmaniasis as we know it today. William Boog Leishman, a general in the British Army and a trained doctor, was stationed near Calcutta in 1901. Some of Leishman's soldiers began to fall ill with a mysterious illness. They had intense pain coming from their insides, as if their own organs were tearing themselves apart. The most serious victims developed black lesions on their skin, earning this affliction the moniker Black Fever. Leishman noticed a connection between this unidentified disease and one that had ravaged villages across the Indian subcontinent. In scenes eerily reminiscent of the Spanish conquistadors invading native settlements only to find them already empty, the British encountered similar ghost towns completely devoid of life. The victims had suffered from what the British had been calling the black fever. Leishman worried a contagion was on the loose. He took it upon himself to solve the mystery. As the first step, Leishman removed some tissue from the spleens of soldiers who had died from the disease and put it under the microscope. With recent advances in microscope technology, Western medical professionals like Leishman could make much more detailed observations than had been possible before. In this case, it led to a shocking discovery. The tissue samples were crawling with parasites. Leishman's research was corroborated by studies conducted by the Englishman Charles Donovan in another area of India, and Leishmaniasis was officially born into medical literature. By 1911, doctors in South America, such as Gaspar Viana, Adolfo Carlos Lindenberg, and Antonio Carini, had independently uncovered Leishmaniasis in the New World. Although cultural communications still hindered a unified global perspective on the parasitic disease, researchers in both the Old and New World had come to one identical conclusion. The parasites had a distinct vector or agent of transmission. The nearly invisible and seemingly inconsequential sandfly. When we return, we'll follow Douglas Preston and his fellow explorers on their journey to treat leishmaniasis and learn just how varied and deadly this parasitic disease can be. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. 
1901, Dr. William Leishman officially discovered the devastating parasitic disease that became known as Leishmaniasis. Over 100 years later, in April 2015, the returning members of an expedition into Honduran Muskidia began to realize that something had followed them back from the jungle. Douglas Preston found a boil on his upper arm that wasn't going away like the rest of his bug bites had. As the team coordinated, they realized that archaeologist Chris Fisher, photographer Dave Yoder, sound engineer Mark Adams, survival expert Andrew Wood, research technician Juan Carlos Fernandez, and a few others still had persistent skin lesions of their own. Yoder was the first to suggest leishmaniasis, recalling it from one of Wood's own spiels on the dangers of the Mosquitia jungle, the white leprosy, as some Hondurans called it. When Preston thought back to his time in Mosquitia, the sandflies occupied a distinct place in his memories, as they had often occupied a disproportionate space within his tent. No matter how hard he had tried, Preston was never able to kill every fly that made it inside. By the end of the team's stay in the jungle, they had reconciled with the fact that they would be bitten. And although Wood had warned them about leishmaniasis being present in Honduras, there were no confirmed reports of it in Mosquitia, as they were the first human beings to step foot in the place for over a hundred years. The leishmaniasis parasite spreads through two key biological mechanisms, and these tiny, buzzing nuisances were one half of this infectious combination. They are what is known in parasitology as vectors. The other half are the reservoir hosts, the mammals where the parasites are born and await extraction by the female sandfly vectors. From there, with a single bite, the sandflies can inject thousands of parasites into a human being. In Preston's writing, he marvels at their size. They are small. It would take about 30 to span a human hair. And yet, these small creatures, even tinier than the smallest sandfly, were now sending chills up the spines of grown adults. They needed guidance, so the American members of the expedition turned to the National Institutes of Health, or NIH, in Bethesda, Maryland. There, within the Laboratory of Parasitic Diseases, a doctor named Theodore Nash would confirm their worst nightmares. Nash explained that there were three main types of greater leishmaniasis, cutaneous, visceral, and mucosal leash. Cutaneous leishmaniasis creates a grotesque sore on the skin, but it usually goes away on its own. White blood cells are capable of suppressing the invasion, and the cutaneous strain usually only leaves a scar behind. Visceral leash, on the other hand, can be the deadliest form of the parasite. It was, after all, what Leishman himself detected amongst the Indian populace and his own soldiers in 1901, the dreaded black fever. And amongst all forms of leishmaniasis, it remains the most deadly on a global scale. 
But since the parasites of visceral leishmaniasis mainly attack the internal organs, modern doctors can often treat this form of leishmaniasis with a cure rate of about 95%. This prompted Preston's curiosity as he asked Dr. Nash why visceral leishmaniasis remained so fatal to so many in the world. And the answer was suitably depressing. While the visceral leishmaniasis cure itself may now be rather simple, access to this cure was not. Parasitology as a field was grossly underfunded all over the world. Since parasites like visceral leishmaniasis mainly affect poor, rural, and developing populations in the Middle East, India, Asia, and Africa, there is little financial incentive to exploring cures. On top of this, these communities and populations are often disconnected from those with the power to help. Based on this, some parasite experts believe that, in general, leishmaniasis and other parasitic diseases are likely underreported due to such factors. Yet despite how terrifying cutaneous and visceral leishmaniasis can be, the diagnosis for members of the Mosquitia expedition was even more terrifying. Leishmania brasiliensis. This was the subtype of yet another subtype of leishmaniasis, distinctly known as mucosal leishmaniasis. What appeared to be superficial differences in classification soon meant a lot to those suffering from leishmaniasis. Mucosal leishmaniasis was the New World's variation of the disease, slightly different than the so-called black fever. It always begins with the appearance of a reddening sore on either the skin or sometimes in the mouth. It can take months after the initial infection for this symptom to appear. Unfortunately for the members of the Mosquitia expedition, Mucosal leishmaniasis was far and away the most disturbing type of the disease. As Preston writes in his own account, the sores grow, eating away from the nose and lips from the inside and eventually causing them to slough off, leaving the face horrifically disfigured. The parasite causes this damage after it tricks the body's white blood cells into surrounding it. The white blood cells engulf the parasite, attempting to smother it. But that's exactly what the parasite wants. After it's surrounded, the parasite switches from mobile mode into reproduction mode, essentially turning the white blood cell into a parasite egg that's rapidly expanding. And when that egg bursts, even more parasites are released back into the human body. This wholesale slaughter of white blood cells causes tissue to become inflamed and eventually destroy itself in an unending fight against the leishmaniasis parasites. Leishmania brasiliensis was one of many sub-variations of mucosal leishmaniasis present throughout South America. But all versions of mucosal leishmaniasis would lead to such results if they could not be treated, which meant Doctors had to act fast. By May 2015, the NIH had laid out their treatment plan for Preston, Yoder, Fisher, Adams, and a few more of the American explorers. The treatment had evolved since the early days of Leishman. Back then, in the early 20th century, 
as Mumtaz Guran outlined in his 2018 paper for Vectors and Vector-Borne Zoonotic Diseases, the surest treatment was pentavalent antimonials. These were substances based around the chemical element antimony, and they worked by essentially poisoning the bloodstream, and therefore poisoning the parasites themselves. However, without a careful balance, such treatment could also result in extremely harmful heart problems, renal failure, anemia, and other ailments. To make matters worse, the leishmaniasis parasite also built up immunity to antimonials over time. After the 1940s, the antifungal drug amphotericin B became the primary method of treatment for leishmaniasis in developed countries. And nearly 80 years later, this would be the treatment method prescribed by Dr. Nash and the NIH. Nash warned his new patients the treatment was still not ideal. Although the drug directly killed leishmaniasis parasites and led to an 85% remission rate, there were a few caveats. First of all, leishmaniasis was never truly cured. The best-case scenario for the patient was that the amphotericin would help their white blood cells gain the advantage and achieve a permanent detente with the invasive parasites. Although leishmaniasis remained in the body, it would no longer be able to infect blood cells and inflame body tissue. But even if this desired result was achieved, it could arrive at a steep cost to the patient. Preston witnessed the aftermath of amphotericin treatment firsthand when he came to visit Dave Yoder after the photographer had undergone treatment. Although Nash's amphotericin treatment would last seven days for each patient, Yoder hadn't even made it through day two before the doctors pulled him out of it. While the antifungal was less dangerous than pentavalent antimonials, it was still toxic to the human body and could often cause extreme discomfort, existential dread, and total renal failure. Yoder had experienced just that. As soon as the amphotericin drip had entered his bloodstream, he told Preston that he felt a big pressure on his chest and a pain in his back. His head felt like it was in flames. Yoder was placed under observation until Nash and his team could decide what to do. A newer alternative drug called miltefacin was being used by some laboratories now, but it was prohibitively expensive. While Nash tried to find some way to get Yoder back into treatment, Preston's own date with destiny arrived in late June 2015. When he sat down for his own amphotericin B drip treatment, terror flooded his body. He braced himself for the pain Yoder had experienced. But then, nothing. No pain, no pressure, no flaming head. The amphotericin B entered Preston's bloodstream, and he felt okay. Preston later joked he was almost disappointed by the anticlimax. But the fight wasn't over. After six days, Preston's renal activity was judged at risk. He was taken off the drip and sent home. When he returned to the NIH in September for a follow-up appointment, Nash diagnosed him as in remission. For now, Preston's white blood cells had gained the upper hand. 
he was incredibly lucky. He didn't have to go on a waiting list for Miltefacin like Yoder or Wood, who were now being treated in London. And most luckily of all, the scar left by his mucosal leishmaniasis was not too traumatizing. Oscar Neal, a Honduran archaeology expert who had accompanied Preston on the expedition, had it much worse than Preston. Not only had the leishmaniasis damaged his facial tissue, but his amphotericin treatment had nearly killed him. For Neil, the curse of La Ciudad Blanca had been very real indeed. Even so, the explorers remained more privileged than the thousands of less fortunate people affected by leishmaniasis each year. Although even the parasite research of the NIH was underfunded, it was light years beyond the treatment available in Honduras and many other countries. Some of the Honduran soldiers who had accompanied them into Mosquitia couldn't even access amphotericin and had to fall back on the pentavalent antimonial treatment. All of this had been the cost of exploration. But it turned out the lost city was not the only discovery uncovered on this expedition. Soon enough, the NIH would determine that the explorers had actually contracted an entirely new subtype of mucosal leishmaniasis, never before witnessed by science. Because as surely as the world turned, leishmaniasis was constantly evolving on its own, the better to defend and propagate its own interests. When we return, we will learn how these parasites continue their adaptation in a changing world and how our world may not be prepared for the consequences. And now, back to the story. The National Institutes of Health, or NIH, ushered members of the 2015 Honduran Mosquitia Expedition into treatment in May of that same year. The doctors believed they had identified the specific strain that infected all of the explorers as Leishmania brasiliensis, a subtype of mucosal leishmaniasis. Treatment through an amphotericin B drip wasn't pleasant or even safe for everyone. But due to lack of interest or funding in parasitology, it was the best the NIH could do. When the writer Douglas Preston was judged to be in remission by September, he decided to expand the focus of his writing from just the Mosquitia expedition to the subject of leishmaniasis as well. This brought him to the intracellular parasite biology section, deep within the NIH's walls. This team was led by Dr. David Sachs, and his goal was to create a biological archive of live leishmania parasites of many different strains and species. In other words, it was a library of leishmaniasis. This lab took biopsies performed by Nash in parasitic diseases, extracted the live parasites, allowed them to breed, and put them into regulated storage. Disturbingly enough, all of these differentiated parasite strains are kept alive by injecting them into reservoir host mice. Inside the host's body, the parasite's virulence is kept active and useful for research through this perpetual wheel of injection and infection. 
This transference of infection was completed through a separate collection of sandflies, which acted as a vector for the disease. Sachs and his team would infect the sandflies through an artificial process. They would rig thin chicken skin over the top of a glass bottle full of mouse blood mixed with parasite samples. The sandfly would mistake this Frankenstein device for a live mammal, bite down, and draw in the parasites. The scientist would then unleash the sandflies into the mice habitat, where a transference from vector to reservoir host would take place. All of this just to keep the Leishmaniasis samples viable in perpetuity. As Preston watched this take place, he couldn't help but think back on his own experience with the flies in the jungle. He suddenly felt close to those hapless mice, trapped inside a biological cycle they could not comprehend. But, as Sachs reminded Preston, this was not as futile as it seemed. Through developing this process, his team has discovered the key proteins utilized by the parasite during their time within the vectors, or sandflies. Preston writes that Sachs's team has created mutant forms of these proteins that might block development. This could be the first important step on the road to the two main goals put forward by Mumtaz Guran in his 2018 paper, The Development of a Successful Vaccine, and the progress of finding new compounds to cure the infection. Yet as we outlined earlier, the creation of such treatments costs millions, and the market just doesn't exist. Sachs told Preston that time was of the essence. In recent years, the World Health Organization had sponsored a series of clinical trials to test a simple leishmaniasis vaccine in which parasites were heat-killed and injected into people. Doctors hoped that dead parasites would prime the immune system to attack live parasites. But the trials failed. Simple solutions were not going to work because, as Sachs's team had recently discovered, leishmaniasis is even more adaptable than previously believed. It was once assumed that the parasites could only divide and reproduce by splitting and cloning themselves. However, Sachs's scientists have observed the parasites breeding with one another inside the sandflies. This explained how leishmaniasis had survived for so long and in such diverse places around the world. They are evolutionarily primed to survive and thrive at the expense of large mammals such as ourselves. It also meant that leishmaniasis could evolve quickly into new and more devastating strains. The NIH soon realized this was exactly what had happened in Mosquitia. The institute soon retracted its initial diagnosis of Leishmania brasiliensis for the members of the expedition. It found instead that their strain was a highly efficient combination of the mucosal strains brasiliensis and panamensis. Since Mosquitia had been empty of humans for 500 years, Leishmaniasis had been free to continuously breed and transfer amongst the various reservoir hosts in the jungle, from rats to tapers, and maybe even through howler monkeys. 
This had resulted in a unique cocktail of infection, and Preston's Mosquitia expedition had been the perfect first human victims. But an even more frightening thought was, they may not be the last. After all, the climate is changing. Hotter weather is pushing sandfly migration patterns further north. Globalization is also bringing disparate cultures into much closer contact than ever before in human history. Not only is previously uninhabitable land being developed and populated, but tourism facilitates the risk of pandemic disease being spread around the world. Even in its current form, leishmaniasis is already one of the most devastating diseases of all time. According to Preston's research, it is the second deadliest parasitic disease in the world, behind only malaria, and it affects 12 million people worldwide, with around one or two million new cases every year. There were only 29 recorded cases of leishmaniasis in the United States throughout the entirety of the last century. This century, however, we've already caught up to that number and will inevitably surpass it. The epidemiologist, Dr. Christy Bradley, was part of the vanguard that observed how wood rats have become a highly successful reservoir host for mucosa leash. The wood rat population has been pushing northward along with the sandflies. Leishmaniasis has now been reported not only in Texas border towns, but much farther away from the border in states such as Oklahoma and Arkansas. While it hasn't broken out in an epidemic fashion just yet, leishmaniasis should scare us just because of how adaptable it is. Bradley told Preston that she was sure leishmaniasis hasn't gone away. It's smoldering somewhere out there, quietly cycling in nature, readying itself for the future. Research done by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation found that we are quite unprepared for this kind of pandemic, pointing out the risk factors in an ever more connected world. A 2018 Washington Post article about the Foundation's study specifically mentioned the government's sprawling bureaucracy, which is not nimble enough to deal with pathogen mutations. This means that a new strain of disease can spiral to pandemic proportions quickly. The Gates Foundation believes we must rapidly increase our stockpile of medication and enhance access to medical care so no region would be caught off guard in a pandemic. As it stands now, even with modern technology and medication, the death toll could reach the hundreds of millions and cause a $3 trillion economic collapse. The Gates Foundation concluded by telling the Post, even the best tools in the world won't be sufficient if the United States doesn't have a strategy to harness and coordinate resources at home and help to lead an effective global preparedness and response system. And yet, global cooperation and unity still feels so far away. All of this weighed heavily on Preston's mind when he made one last visit to Mosquitia in January 2016. T1 looked like an entirely different place, with jungle cleared away and archaeological sites clearly outlined. 
at the time, the new president of Honduras was on his way to officially deem this place a Honduran National Heritage Site and give it a real name, not La Ciudad Blanca, but La Ciudad del Jaguar, in reference to the small artifact the initial expedition had first uncovered. The president framed this moment as a lesson in national unity and global teamwork. Preston could not help but think of the city's fate 500 years ago, a strong and robust culture, protected and self-sufficient, yet still cut down in its prime by an invisible disease. In this modern age, as we work to form a cultural Pangaea, our societal unification could be a peaceful union or a disastrous clash. Has the lesson of La Ciudad del Jaguar and other lost cities like it arrived too late? This will not be the case if we can come together to fund research into cures for leishmaniasis. If not, the parasite may adapt in unforeseeable ways and blindside those without the resources to stop it. If humanity can overcome its own natural drive for domination, perhaps we can spare ourselves the fate of so many cultures that have come before us. Perhaps we can prove that our own millennia of evolution has made us just as capable and persistent as the smallest leishmaniasis parasite. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. For more information on leishmaniasis and the 2015 expedition into Moschidia, amongst the varied sources we used, Douglas Preston's personal account from the lost city of the monkey god was extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, But now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Medical Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Joel Stein, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Jack Bentel and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.